Good morning, family. It is a privilege to be able to meet you here today. I know that um, you're not normally used to seeing me in a room like this. Um, in fact, this week is a little different. Originally, Jason was going to be um, speaking to you just like he did this past Sunday um, as my family um, are off and out of town visiting family. And the course of the last uh, 10 days and really the last few weeks have just been increasingly um, weighing on my heart and on my mind. And in some ways, I, I haven't left the city that I left to come here because of my love, my concern, um, my anger, my frustration, um, my sense of despair and what some of us are walking through and what some of you are walking through. And so um, tonight, I'm pre-recording this message because I, I believe I have a responsibility as your pastor to remind you of the hope that we have because it doesn't feel very hopeful right now. That, in fact, um, as someone I was on the phone with told me the day they have never, ever, in their 60-plus years of being alive, ever felt more concerned than they do today. And that, I just want to give an open disclaimer at the beginning of this, that um, I'm not going to say everything perfectly. If I did, honestly, if I set out to try to say everything perfectly, I would have never preached this message because it's not possible. The email that I sent out this week about Jesus weeping and how they watched him weep. And in verse 36 of chapter 11 of the book of John, it said, oh, look how he weeps. He must have really loved Lazarus. But I didn't give you verse 37, which was some others in the crowd looked at Jesus weeping. And instead of seeing his love for Lazarus, they lashed out at how, well, he's weeping, but if he had been here, maybe he would have never had to weep in the first place. That I recognize that the reality of this circumstance and situation um, is not going to allow me to say everything perfectly. But here's what I sincerely believe. The Christian faith doesn't just give me hope for the afterlife. It gives me hope for this life too. And that's why I wanted to record this message and step into this conversation with you today that our nation is currently engaged in. The reality of George Floyd's death and the pressure cooker that we currently find ourselves in, um, for, for many of us feel brand new. For, for some of us is something that we've been living through our entire life. And I want to acknowledge that I am a, a white man. I, I am not an expert on systemic racism. I'm not an expert on um, race history in America. I don't have the experience that so many in our congregation do of being black in America. Um, and I recognize that the spectrum of that experience is far broader than I could ever even begin to understand. And that my goal is not to be able to repeat back to your experience, but that the Bible calls me to step into your experience and to rejoice with you and to weep with you. And so I'm not here this morning as a politician. Um, I'm not here this morning as a policymaker. I'm here this morning as a pastor who has a call to lead his people and to point his people to the hope that we have in him. And while 
this moment may feel new to us. The reality is, is that it's not new in history. Racism has been a plague of humanity very, from the very early beginnings of this broken thing that we call life. And that the early church was not immune to it. In fact, I want to take you to a passage today that may be surprising for some of you. That while maybe church history um, isn't the best history to look at sometimes when it comes to race and how people have used religion to oppress race and to control races and to justify racism. But in order to get to the truth, I want to, I want to skip past the religion. I want to skip past the structures and I want to look at the storyline of our faith and what the early church encountered. You see, in Acts chapter 6, uh, there is a moment in the early church history that I believe is actually instructive for us today. And, and what I like about this story is it gives us a little bit of a distance to step back and to kind of see the moment that we're living in through the lens of some people who've already walked through something similar to us and yet have have in a way, given guidance for us to navigate where we are today. Uh, the book of Acts, for those who've been at Encounter Church um, for a while, you've heard me say this, um, was really part of a two-volume set. Luke, who was a physician-turned-historian, uh, essentially a Ken Burns of his day. He, he's making documentaries. Um, he kind of records the life of Jesus in the biography of Jesus that we call the book of Luke. And then after the systematic study of the life of Jesus, he sets a second volume into production that we call the book of Acts. Acts. And what Acts, the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles um, really contains is the history of the church that's born out of, that's birthed from Jesus's resurrection. And Luke does such a phenomenal job of uh, kind of capturing for us what it was like in the early days of this thing that was exploding in Jerusalem, uh, something that didn't even have a name yet, that was just simply connected to Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, it says, In those days, the very early days, when the number of the disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them were complaining about and against the Hebraic Jews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what we see in kind of this opening moment, the church is growing. People's lives are being changed. And what happens is there is an underlying tension. There is some injustice that's already starting to emerge. The Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews who both are... Um, uh, in a, a place of need and desperation, the widows from both of those communities, in a day and an age where there was no welfare system, the church was the welfare system. The widows, if they did not have children, did not eat. And so they relied on the church. And what happens is that the Hellenistic and the Hebraic widows are finding themselves in a place where all of a sudden racism has begun to creep into how the church is ministering to them. The Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews have a far more complicated history than I can impact for us right now. Uh, it goes back centuries in their backstory. 
But what you need to know is that Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews, that just like the day that they lived in, racism was rampant and it was okay in their mind to discriminate against someone because of the skin color that they had or the name that they had or the background in which they came from. It was justified in their mind to, to practice that demonic sin of somehow believing that you have more worth or value because of the skin pigmentation that you carry in your DNA, and that these two groups of people were starting to become a pressure cooker for this new thing called the church that was starting to grow. And so it says that the 12 gathered all the disciples together, because this is a matter of life and death. If the Hellenistic Jew, if the widows in that community do not get food, they do not live. And they bring it to the 12, which is the name for the apostles or Jesus' original followers. And it says, it would not be right for us to neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, that, that passage is a little hard to process through because we're 2,000 years removed But one of the things that you need to realize that can be overlooked when we read Acts chapter 6 is the fact that the early church did something with racism. Racism was the water people swam in. It was what they did. They believed the demonic lie that their skin pigmentation or the language or their culture made them more valuable than others. And yet... What is amazing, that is, it's unspoken, is the fact that the early church actually recognized the racism and addressed it. They didn't run from it. They didn't deflect it. They listened and responded to it. And in some ways, the most shocking and the the headline of what happens in Acts chapter 6 isn't even written in it. They saw the racism and they addressed it as wrong. They understood that what was happening in the early church was in direct opposition to the central message of Christianity. There is no room in the Christian theological system for an idea as demonic and as wrong as the fact that some human beings have more value than others. That we do not carry a subjective value. We carry an objective value because the value of every single man, woman, and child from womb to tomb is the fact that Jesus was crucified on the cross for them. And in that act, central to the Christian theological system, that act placed a price tag on every single person, regardless if they believe it or not, that they are of infinite value, that they are of infinite worth. And that they nor I can do anything to reduce that price tag. There is no clearance sell on the price of humanity. There is no discounting on the price of humanity. We are all, all of infinite value. From the prostitute on the street that no one sees to someone sitting in a corner office and everything in between. To the orphan who weeps tonight. To you sitting on your couch listening today, you matter to him. And the disciples, they saw that. 
They saw how Jesus went out of his way to talk to Samaritan women. People wouldn't have even looked at a Samaritan and Jesus interacted with them. And they saw that. And so when the racism bubbled up in the early church, the apostles were like, "Uh uh-uh, no. This is not okay. This is not, there is not a place in the house or the family of God for some of his children to believe that they're better than some of the others. And so what they do is they mobilize. And in the midst of all of the nuance of what happens, we can miss the very practical wisdom of what's happening in front of us. You see, the first thing they did that I think is really important is they listened. They heard what was being said. I don't see deflection. I don't see demonization. I don't see uh, social media wars. I see a group of men who spent time with Jesus who recognize what's happening in front of them is wrong. And it needs to be dealt with. They listen. So you see, the, the challenge of where we are right now today is that clicks and comments have become our default. We live our lives sequestered to screens, and it is easy to demonize. It is easy to justify your demonization when all you see is a two-dimensional face and an avatar on your screen. Clicks and comments were never meant to be the default, but they've become that. The default of the church was meant to be compassion and conversation, dialogue, not demonization. And that what I've watched as someone who's not even active on social media, it's just made me sick. And the way that the most important conversation, the most important reality has been reduced to just hashtags and arguments while the humanity, both the humanity that was lost through George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey, or the dozens of other names that we could just pull up right now and start reading just from Michael Brown Jr. to today, right? That we've allowed the polarization and the political climate of our day to allow us to shift to a default that was never meant to be our default. Clicks and comments don't change lives. Jesus does. His love does. And then the early church responds by conversation and compassion. Not just oversimplified clicks and comments and echo chambers that play out what they already hear. The early church doesn't, doesn't hear. And here's the thing that I think is really important. When we listen, we have to listen to what's being said and by who is saying it. Man, I got, I got like an eight-year-old little girl who teaches me that every single day. She is a smart, articulate, beautiful little woman just like her mom. And she is so full of life and emotion. And there are times where I have to remind myself that if I am going to, to parent her well, I have to step into her shoes and see the size of her problem through her eyes. That it's so easy for me to dismiss what she throws at me. 
Well, Dad, this happened. This is so bad, Dad. This, I can't find that. And I'm like, you have 17 of those. That doesn't matter. You're not even going to remember where that is three years from now. But if I take a step back and I step into her shoes, what I realize is that my little girl has lost something that is of infinite value to her in that moment. And that what I think is petty grief is actually profound grief. And that the early church modeled for us that we're to listen, we're to step into their shoes. We're to fill the hunger pains of the Hellenistic Jews. And we're not only meant to just sit and to hear it, but we're, we're meant to respond to it and to actually do something with it. Not overreact or not getting called up and listening only for what's not being said. Like what doesn't happen is the Hellenistic Jews do not arrive and say, you think the Hebraic Jews are better than us. You think Hebraic Jews' lives matter. You don't think our lives matter. Like they listen to what's right in front of them and they respond to what they hear because they saw Jesus do that day in and day out. And that they don't ask them to calm down. They don't ask them to tamper their anger because the emotion's appropriate. If you're starving or if you're dying, you should be angry and outraged. And the early church steps in and takes responsibility for it. But how they take responsibility, I think, is so brilliant. You notice that they respond... Uh, at first, it seems harsh, right? It says, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And at first, you're like, well, hold up. Are you saying that you, you don't think what is happening is important? No, no, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, look, Jesus gave us a mandate. Jesus gave us a command. That's what we're going to do. And this racism, this isn't okay. So, no, we have a responsibility to take care of this. But... You're, we're not going to let you make this our problem. We're not going to let you make this a small group of people with powers problem. This is going to become our problem. Notice what he does, right? It says that we will turn. So it says, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Known from who? Among you. The Hellenistic Jews? No, no, no. You plural, the Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews, collectively. This is not a Hellenistic Jew problem. This is a you problem. You need to figure this problem out. You collectively, not us. No. Hellenistic, Hebraic Jews, you need to have a conversation and you need to work through this. We need dialogue and we need you to pick men who we can hand this responsibility over, who are going to make sure every single day that every person gets fed. Because what can happen is I think we can fall into a trap of saying, of oversimplifying our solutions. Oh, well, if we just get the right people elected, if we just get the right people voted. You can't legislate love. I'm not saying that there's not legislation issues to be dealt with, but you can't legislate love. And what they rightly do is they, they push the problem back to the community. And the community takes that problem and says, okay, we're going to solve it. 
Because central to our theological system is that every man, woman, and child has infinite value and worth. And that we watched him leave the 99 and to chase the one. We watched him step across racial lines in order to serve and to love. I mean, his most famous story was, was literally, it was like a clickbait, shocking headline. The Good Samaritan was one of Jesus' most famous stories. We take for granted how scandalous that was. Because Jews hated Samaritans. And Jesus is one of his most famous stories to, to illustrate one of the most significant laws in Jewish scriptures is to use a Samaritan to do so. Like they watched Jesus do that and they were like, no, 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 no. This is not, this is not okay. We're going to confront this. And what I love about the fact that they look to the community to have dialogue and to make the decision to how to fix it is that it became their collective problem, not a segment's problem. It is really hard to find a solution for a, a section of society if society itself does not step in. And the church embraces this horrible sin of racism. They don't deflect. They don't defend. They acknowledge it's there. And they deal with it. And the way they deal with it is, and again, is, it's mind-blowing to me. I was, I've been thinking about this passage this week. They dealt with it at all the different levels. It's an individual level. The men who are responsible for leading this, what kind of men were they? they? They were marked by the character of who they were. It says that they chose men who had wisdom. They had a, a supreme, supreme, unique character qualifications. These men were extraordinary. So there's this individual heart level. There is this community level. And then there is a systemic level. I mean, like, whoo. So they... They institute what the, the church will later call deacons or servants. What they do is they, the apostles create a church structure to deal with the systemic injustice that was present in the church structure. And I realize I'm kind of using words that most of us don't use in the course of everyday life because the word systemic is one of those things. It's like, what does that even mean? The, the system that was present in that day made it okay for one set of widows to not get food. And the, the disciples recognized if they were going to fix the problem fully, it wasn't just the heart shift that would happen as they aligned themselves with Jesus' values, is that it also had to ripple out through the systems and structures that supported Jesus' heart being demonstrated to. And so what gets created is the deacons to address the systemic injustices that were present in the early church. And that the, the system reality for us, I think, is one of those interesting things. On the way uh, to driving to where I am, I drove past New York City. And I, you know me well enough to know I'm kind of a weird nerd. I'm not even a nerd, I'm just a weird nerd. And as I'm driving by, I'm looking at New York City's skyline, and I'm like, it's so fascinating that New York is even there in the first place. Like, why is there a New York? Why, why is there even a New York? Why is this place one of the most significant cities in the world? Because if you go back through history, 
less than 200 years ago, New York and Boston were in competition with each other for being the influential, intellectual, kind of culture-creating city um, of the United States of America. And so I'm having this eternal dialogue because nobody in the car is wanting to have this dialogue with me. Um, so I just keep it upstairs. And I'm like, it's so fascinating. The reason New York is the way it is is because as the steel industry began to be born and steel began to be produced and they realized that steel structures could be built to go higher than what wood structures could do, which is around five or six stories if I remember correctly, and that the as steel is being produced and as architects and engineers are realizing we can build buildings taller than we've ever built them because of this new thing called steel being mass produced, um, the challenge with steel is steel needs a certain type of foundation to be able to go up. It, it turns out that steel buildings are really heavy. And if you just plop a big skyscraper anywhere, the ground may not be able to support the weight and it falls. And New York, specifically Manhattan, is, is geographically, geologically unique, um, globally speaking, in that it is a huge piece of rock stuck in the middle of the river. And that rock, that foundation, allows it to support the weight, to handle the steel beams that gave rise to the skyscrapers, that attracted the businesses that attracted the workers, that attracted more businesses, that attracted more workers, that, so, that attracted the cultural industries that they now could go and engage with, that attracted more businesses and tourism and more skyscrapers, and it continued to climb higher and higher as the flywheel turned, as Wall Street provided resources, and that thing continued to grow until what it is today. Now, you and I walk by it every single day, or we see, whether it's in a picture on an ad on the subway or whether it's on a movie or a television that we watch like we see images of New York City regularly but most of the time we don't see the system that supported the city in the first place you see systems aren't a normal way of thinking but they are a normal way of living they're everywhere they're present in the way that we fill out uh, applications to get jobs. They're present in the way that we go before zoning boards to pick where we can and cannot build our house or start our business. They're present everywhere. And that most of us uh, naturally, especially as a white man who hears about systemic racism, um, it's natural that some of us want to recoil because, so, well, I'm not a racist. Like, I'm not racist. And when we listen to people who've lived in that system, that does give certain advantages to the people who built the system. Even as the flywheel turns for generations, that we can maybe internalize a sense of guilt or feeling bad because maybe when they say that, we feel like, well, I'm a racist. No, that's not what's being said. It's that we, like the early church, have to lift our eyes, not just the individual or the corporate level, but we have to look at the community and the structural level too and realize that evil and, and sin and brokenness is present at every single level of our society. And it is the job of light to run out darkness. It is the job of the lights in this room to illuminate. 
And that we as the church are meant to be that hope, that presence of Jesus in every single sector and sphere that we inhabit and occupy. It's why they structurally address the systemic injustices. It's why you and I should not recoil when we hear about systemic injustices, but we should recognize that in the midst of that, there is a call to action. There is an opportunity. The people who hold the keys to the system can actually rebuild the system. That we have an opportunity. One of the things that broke my heart was a few weeks ago. Um, I was reading about Cancer Alley. <clears throat> it's an area I'd never heard of before. Um, so in Louisiana, along the Mississippi River, as it transitions into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, some of the largest chemical plants in America are stationed along the snaking Mississippi River there. And... One of the things that's unique about Cancer Alley, the reason it's called that, is there is a significantly high rate of cancer in the kind of downwind effects of the plumes of the styrofoam plants and the oil refineries. But it's when you start to dig underneath and you go back not just 5, 10, 50 years, but when you go back a couple hundred years and you see it as the location for where uh, plantations were present and then it was the location for where sharecroppers were present and then it was the location for where Jim Crow laws propagated uh, kind of segregated systems of livelihood and that those as each one of those laws or kind of cultural trends fell the reality of those systems stayed and that 66% of those communities are, are poor are African American and they live and they inherited the consequences of choices made before they ever stepped in. And for my white brothers and sisters, we inherited a world that we did not build. In the same way that my daughter was born into a family that she did not shape. And what falls on us as Christians who are meant to live and reflect that love is that each generation is handed the keys and we're given an opportunity to leave something better than how we found it. I've been thinking about some of our kids, our children, this week. Um, the ones who I miss hugging on Sunday morning because I don't get to see you. And the question I've been asking is, what kind of world are we going to leave, not just for Henry and Ella, my children, but what kind of world are we going to leave for your children? Because as a church, we're a family. They are our children too. What type of world are we going to leave for them? And I'm so grateful for Jesus and what he modeled and how he stepped in and he leaned in with his words and with his actions, a picture of love that is still revolutionary 2,000 years later. And I'm so grateful that the early church leaned into racism and said, no, not in this house. It may be okay out there, but it will never be okay here. And that we will not give this world that we inherited from our parents to our children. Systemic injustice, the white privilege, all the different languages that get thrown around that can cause us to feel uncomfortable or, or, or not sure how to respond. They're not meant to be condemnations. They're meant to be calls to action. We have an ability to build a better world, a world where your sons and your daughters don't have to be reduced to a hashtag. My son was never born to be a hashtag. 
No mother should ever, ever see her child become a hashtag. And God weeps with humans become hashtags because we're robbed. We're not just robbing ourselves, we're robbing him who is the stamper, creator, and author of each one of those people. I don't pretend to have solutions. I'm a pastor, not a policymaker, and I'm not a politician. But what I do have is the word of God and the wisdom of God and a call of God to lead his people not just to the afterlife, but to this life where we're meant to experience it abundantly. And I don't think it's an abundant life if some of our children walking into the church are automatically crippled in what they can attain because of the color of their skin or the culture that they come from. That may be not okay, but okay out there. But it's not okay here. Because the God we serve, the God we follow, demonstrated over and over again that he's not colorblind. I think that we want to believe that somehow there's this aspirational kind of uniformity that means that we're all the same. But what's interesting is you flip to the end and how this thing plays out. The book of Revelation. And John, who spends time with Jesus, is writing as he sees heaven open up. And what does he say? Over and over again in his letter that we call the letter, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, I look and I saw before the throne every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. How does he write that? It's because what he writes is what he sees. You see, the rainbow of heaven is reflected in the skin tones and the diversity of our cultures. Heaven does not erase our skin color. It, it finally brings the, the picture and the collage that was meant to be together all together in one place. The God we serve, his majesty and the depth of his glory and reflection of his wonder can only be captured in the breadth of the skin tones and the culture that exists around the world. No race holds a monopoly on Jesus. No political party holds a monopoly on Jesus. Jesus is not a Democrat. He is not a Republican. He does not exist to serve your agenda or my agenda. We exist to serve his agenda. And his agenda is that justice should roll like a river, that love should flow like tears and laughter into every single circumstance and situation that we step into. Whether it's the moments we're meant to rejoice with those who rejoice, or whether it's the moments we're meant to weep with those who weep, or whether it's the moments when we see injustice and we stand up and we speak to it, even if we don't know what it's like to experience it. That you and I, and the the beauty of this church that we get to be a part of, actually find its strength 
and its diversity. And that the early church modeled for us a path forward, a path filled with hope, not one that was focused on us or the uncomfortableness that can come as we lean into these difficult conversations, but a path that was rooted in humility because of who Jesus was and what Jesus did, a path forward that allows us to listen and to hear what is being said, not fixating and focusing on what people are not saying. Because when people say black lives matter, they don't mean other lives don't. And and if we learn to listen, we learn to love, and we learn to embrace arm and arm and hand and hand and look to the community level and to the church and say, not in this house will we allow this stand. And when we embrace that and we mobilize from that, then we can start to look to the systems that propagate it and begin to imagine what justice and love and Jesus would look like present in those systems too. And that this past week, we were all reminded of the uniqueness of the nation that we live in. Not just the tragedies that are being replayed over and over or that's being expressed through the protest. But we, we also watched a rocket being launched into outer space. And as a celebration of what this nation and its potential, not in its reality, but what its potential has present. And the potential that this nation has is born out of the hope that we have in the gospel. The, the, this, this present soil that can give rise to things, that allows things to potentially grow. Like we were reminded of that. That if we come together, if we're willing to work hard and lean in, that we can write a better future for our children and their children's children. And that in doing so, we don't, we're not speaking ill of the story we inherited to our parents. We instead are picking up the mantle to leave to our kids what they desired for us and what we desire for our own kids, to leave a better world to them. Because the Christian life was not just about having hope in the afterlife. It was about having hope in this life too. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your work. I just at the very beginning, just want to acknowledge the fact that there were things that uh, people may be thinking I, I should have said and didn't say, or things that I could have said. And I'm so grateful for your grace that met me in this moment, that meets us in this moment, and that none of us can shoulder the weight of perfection, but you can't. So thank you that while the pastor of this church may be imperfect, its Savior and Creator is not. And that your love and your hope and your power, your majesty, your glory, your bride, your church was meant to shine. And may we be the light and the hope that you intended us to be when you took your last breath on the cross. And when you burst forth from the tomb. 
And it's in that name of Jesus, the name of Jesus that brings hope to those in our congregation who are grieving, who are angry, who are hurt at what they're seeing and the lives that are being lost. It's the God who weeps. And you're also the God who works. And may we, in the midst of our grieving, in the midst of our assessing and reevaluating, also be reminded that you're a God who mobilizes the church to be you. And may people see Jesus in us, too. And it's in your name, Jesus, the name that we desire to reflect, that I pray. Amen.